hear again from this text what the Lord says. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. So for the reading, so for the preaching of the word, may the Lord give us ears to hear. Our text for the preaching is Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. In this phrase, break up your fallow ground. When the Lord looked upon Israel in the days of Hosea, he saw a fruitless field. That ought not to have been so. And the saddest part is it needed not to have been so. There was enough grace in the Lord if they had sought it for them to be the fruitful field that he intended them to be. And so here he exhorts them to sowing, to doing it particularly by seeking the Lord. For it is time to seek the Lord, he says, and to do it in hope. That those who sow in that way will reap in mercy. And the reaping, the harvest, will be so great that it will be as if rain was falling from heaven. Till he come and rain righteousness upon you. But there's a problem. And it's a problem that's addressed right in the middle of this verse. Their ground is fallow. That means it's not been planted. And if it's not planted, they won't have a harvest. But it means also that it's not even plowed. It's not ready for planting. This ground is growing only weeds. Even if they were to scatter seed, it would just stand there on the surface and would be eaten and would not germinate. And even what it did could not survive. The soil is not ready to receive good seed, and thus it will not bear good fruit. So we have our text in which God says to the people, break up your fallow ground. That is, prepare the soil of your heart that it might receive seed and bear good fruit. From this text, I want to bring you three doctrines today. Two will prepare us for the third on which we'll spend our most time. Let's consider these first two preparatory doctrines. The first of them is this, that man by nature is spiritually fallow. That's presumed here. Because the reason Israel is spiritually fallow is because they are such by nature and have not been changed by grace. All men, every man, every one of you is by nature spiritually a fruitless piece of ground. This is true, first of all, in our first father, Adam I remind you of that familiar teaching in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. 
when Adam sinned, we all sinned in him, and we were all lost with him, having his sin imputed to us so that we are guilty before God, even just by his one sin. But the proof of that imputation is that we have not only his sin imputed, but passed on. That corruption which immediately followed from his sin in his own nature was passed down to every one of us so that we come into this world physically alive but spiritually dead. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in trespasses and sins. We are, as Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, bad trees. And that's why we bear bad fruit. And no one is exempt. I read to you from Romans 3, again, familiar words, but words you ought not to forget. This is basic. This is the beginning of the gospel. Romans 3, starting in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. We could read on and how Paul speaks to us in all its awful detail of what this sin looks like. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongue they've used deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips, and on and on. Read this whole passage as you meditate upon this fact, my friends, that all men are by nature spiritually fallow ground. It's as if in Proverbs, speaking of the slothful, God himself is passing through and observing the field and nettles have grown up and covered the face thereof. As he pronounces over all men in Noah's day, so over all men in our day, that every imagination of all the thoughts of their heart is only evil continually. This, my friends, is our nature. Spiritually fallow ground. No good fruit at all. This doctrine is useful for us in one special way here, that it calls you to confess this fact about yourself. It, as well as to confess that when this command comes to us, break up your fallow ground, that you cannot do it by your own strength. You have no ability in yourself to obey this command. Unless God work in you, you will never be able to bear good fruit. You will remain forever a fruitless field. You remember the people of Israel came to Joshua and they seemed eager to serve the Lord. And he replied to them in Joshua 24, 19, ye cannot serve the Lord. He knew their hearts. God knows your hearts. 
And he says the same to you today. Ye cannot serve the Lord. You have no ability in yourself to heed this command. And yet it remains a command to break up your fallow ground. Now your own heart might object here. The wicked love to object this. Well, isn't God then cruel? God forbid. But people say it. Perhaps your own heart doubts this sometimes. How could it be that I have no ability in myself to obey this command, and yet God still commands it? He still requires me to do this. Well, I want to help you here with some clarifications. When we speak of man's inability in sin, we're not speaking of a simple or absolute inability, as if men were animals who can't do any deed, good or bad, because they don't have reason. They're not responsible for their actions. That's not at all what's happening here. It's not either like a man who has no legs, as if we told him to run a marathon. That would be cruel. That's not what God is doing when he speaks to spiritually dead sinners. It's more like a man who has legs, but who's in chains. And he has a duty to break forth from those chains and to run that race that God has set before him. But you might even say, well, what about those chains? If he can't do it, isn't it cruel? No, it's not. Because of this fact, why are the chains there? It's because of your own fault. The sin in which sinners are enslaved is a sin that they love. The slavery of sinners is a willing slavery. This is how deep our sinful condition runs. That it's not like something is externally preventing our will from doing good that we want to do. No, we don't want to do any good. We have not only no ability to do good, but no desire to do good. That is the case And every sinner who is condemned for being a fruitless field will not be able to answer against God at all because they liked the fact that they were fruitless. They didn't want to bear good fruit for God. So be sure of this fact, my friends, and confess it before the Lord, that man by nature is spiritually fallow ground. The second doctrine flows right from that. That given such impossibly hard soil, the first plowing of our heart, the first breaking up of our fallow ground must be done by God alone. We speak of this in theology as regeneration, sometimes as effectual calling, a calling that comes from outside of us in which God, by his power, alone changes our dead nature. This is necessary, it must be so, because we're spiritually dead. You can tell a dead man all you like to wake up. He's not able. God has to raise the dead before he can respond to the call to live. And so, again, a familiar text. John chapter 3. Christ is speaking to Nicodemus, We don't presume that these things don't need repeating. Remember that Nicodemus was the teacher in Israel. 
A seminary professor who might say, and he didn't understand this first thing. I want to make sure you know this. Christ says in chapter 3, verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He says it previously in verse 3. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you see what Christ is saying? That by nature, we being fruitless fields, we need God to be the first to plow us up. We need God to work, to put that new life in us before we can, by his strength, exercise it our own selves. An application flows directly from this doctrine as well. We see here God's sovereignty and salvation. Verse 8, again, of John 3, makes that plain. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. This work of regeneration is not something any man can decide to do because it comes to him when he has no power or desire to make such a decision. Do you see that God is sovereign? That if he does not begin the work of salvation in us, it will never happen? And that beginning of that work depends entirely on his free choice and on nothing at all in man. It depends, yes, on his choosing of those he would regenerate from all eternity, but neither does that choice depend on any man. He doesn't choose men for things he looks forward to to happen in their life. No, those things happen because he chose that they would happen. Do you see God's sovereignty? And my friend, do you bow before it? That's the only proper response to the God who alone can begin this work of turning fruitless ground into a fruitful field. Bow before his sovereignty and recognize that in light of our text, this command to plow up the hard and fruitless ground, that this very doctrine of God's sovereignty is like the sharp edge of that plow. That men must recognize this and submit to it before they'll ever have any soil ready. Christ speaks this way in John 6, and we see it on display in the hearts of sinners themselves. He speaks to them of many things in John 6, but I point you particularly to verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Christ speaking to us of the same doctrine of God's sovereignty, how he alone can draw the sinner. But this doctrine greatly offends them. Verse 61, Christ sees that they're murmuring. He said, does this offend you? This, speaking of other doctrines, but including this as well, because we can see that in verse 65. And he said, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. 
How do men respond to this doctrine of God's sovereignty? Next verse, 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. So before I come to exhorting you to break up your fallow ground, I ask you, do you know this fact? That God is the sovereign plower. That he must come and break up your ground before you have the ability to break up that ground yourself. Before you recognize that, confess it and bow before this sovereign God, you will never be able to do the work that is set before us. Being prepared then by those two doctrines, we come to the main doctrine of this text, is that all men have a duty to prepare their own hearts to bear good fruit for God. Again, that all men have a duty to prepare their own hearts to bear good fruit for God. As I've said, you don't have a moral ability by nature, and yet God's command still stands. It's still right. It's still just that you, all of you, would plow up your own heart to make it ready to bear good fruit. Now, the application here needs to be divided because there is some soil that has not yet been plowed at all. And I would speak then to the unconverted in our midst. I don't see hearts, but God does. Think of Israel. Hosea preached this message to a people we know very plainly we're not all converted. And we have no promise that it will be very different in the New Testament. We'll, there will always be a mixed multitude, wheat and tares. And this is essential that you would know which one you are. I call you tares, if so you be. The unconverted in our midst. Those who may even profess the name of Jesus, but do not know him in a saving way. You, and in a sense more urgently than all the rest, you must break up your fallow ground. How do you do this? Well, I bring to the unconverted, and I trust this will be a blessing to the converted as well. Six means, six ways to break up your fallow ground. The first, the foremost, the most powerful, the ox that pulls the plow is faith. You must believe. I command you as a minister of Christ today, as all faithful ministers must do, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do, thou shalt be saved, as they told the jailer, and thy house. But you must do this. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only in this way may first you obtain forgiveness for all that time, perhaps years, perhaps decades, in which you were a fallow field, fruitless ground. Do you recognize that that was an offense to God, that you would live for so long without any spiritual fruit? God created you to bear fruit for him, and you haven't done it. You owe him you must be forgiven, and the only way is that you believe. 
Because the only way you can be justified, made right before God for all your wrongs, is by believing. It can't be by your good works. They could not earn God's forgiveness. It's a free gift by grace. You need today to come to Christ and believe in him so that your fruitlessness may be forgiven. But you must also have faith so that you would have power to be able to do the plowing. You must come to believe in him. And by that faith, you have, as it were, a hand to put upon the plow. Faith is the mother grace. It's the grace behind all graces. It's the grace from which all graces flow. Because, as we'll see more fully this afternoon, faith is the grace that puts us in union with the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Ghost. Through faith, applying to those who believe all the things that he has purchased, including the power of a new life. If you want to plow, you have to plow by faith. It is the only way. So friends, believe. Second, you must repent. You must turn from your sins unto God. Repentance is not like faith in that repentance doesn't put us in union with Christ. It doesn't have that place in the Christian life. But repentance, like faith, is necessary for salvation. It will never not be present if there is true faith. You must repent. And this is why all faithful ministers throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, think in the New Testament of John the Baptist, of Christ, of the apostles. How often do they say, even as the very first word in their sermons, repent. And so I say to you, repent. You must turn away from sin. You must turn from the fruitlessness in which you have lived for so long. This is the most proper and direct application of this idea of plowing. Because what does a plow do? It breaks the ground and it pulls out and uproots the weeds and removes or at least exposes the rocks that are there in your life so that you can cast them away. If you're going to plow, you must repent. This is the tip, so to speak, of the gospel spear and it needs to pierce your heart if you would be saved. Repent. Third, hear. Hear. You need to hear the word of God. That word that the Bible says is like a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces, like a two-edged sword that pierces into the heart. A plow is like a sword in that way. It has a sharp edge that cuts. And you must come under the word of God to be cut open by it if you would be saved. You need especially to be here. If you're not believing today, you're in the right place. Because here is where God is running his plow through his field. And may it cut you. If you want to be cut by the plow, come here where God is plowing. But not just here. You need to search the scriptures yourself daily. Open them up 
and find in them the Lord Jesus Christ, that precious pearl. By your own plowing of the word, you need to find that treasure there and make it your own. Come under the word of God by hearing. So believe, repent, and hear. Fourth, pray. Pray. We've heard already that unless God regenerates you, you have no hope of being able to plow. But it's even true that if you are regenerated in your conversion and in all the graces that come after that, though, yes, you have a duty and you have a work to do in this portion of salvation, the power of that work is not your own. It's God's. They are your works. Conversion is, the Bible says, a work. Otherwise, God would not command you to do it. But the power of that work does not come from yourself. It cannot, given what we've heard already about you and your sin by nature. It has to come from God, working in you, as Paul says, to will and to do for his good pleasure. Because of that, you need to pray. Prayer is a confession of that fact. In prayer, we come to God and ask for him the things that we are asking precisely because we can't get them ourselves. We need God to give them. You need to pray. Pray for God to plow your heart. Pray for God to give you grace to plow your heart. If you come sincerely, I promise you, as God does, he'll hear that prayer. And he will give you grace to plow unto the saving of your soul. And we have two examples in the scripture of such heart-plowing prayers. Think of the thief upon the cross. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. That's a picture of a plowed heart, isn't it? It's indeed part of the act of plowing that he would appeal to God, to Christ for salvation. And you remember the response, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Remember as well the publican Christ tells us of in Luke 18, how he couldn't even look to heaven and he smote upon his breast and he cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a plowed heart. That's a plowing of the heart. And God saved that man. He went down to his house justified. And so will you if you pray in that way today. Fifth, fear. In all these things, you must have a godly fear. But I bring you especially the motivation of God's threats. The fallow ground will be destroyed. Make no mistake of this. It's a very sinful thing to be a fallow piece of ground before the God who rightly commands you to bear fruit for him. And if you die in such a fruitless condition, you will be burned. You might think this is harsh. It's not. It's no more strong than the very words of God that he preaches throughout the Bible to you. I read to you from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 4 to 6. And hear Isaiah's words in particular as they are pointed toward those who have received so much grace, at least outwardly, being in the covenant community in Israel, having the rain of God's blessing poured upon them, having the plow at work in their midst and yet not in their hearts. 
If that is you today, you need especially to hear this urgent word. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. My unconverted friend, you need to hear the weight of this word. This is a threat for this life and the life to come. That if you refuse to be fruitful, if you desire, as you do by nature, to be an unfruitful field, then God will give you up to that desire. He will allow you to go on bearing weeds. You might think the fruit looks pretty, but you know, don't lie to yourself, that it's no good fruit. It's thorns. It's thistles. It's nothing that is useful for God or for man. And God will let you go on. He won't prune or dig you. Oh, this should be awful to you. God says, I won't do the plowing that I must do if you will not do the plowing that you must do. God will give you over to your sins. And he will give you over to their just punishment. The wages of sin is death. I read to you another testimony of this from Hebrews chapter 6. And again, think how God uses agricultural images with a strong effect. He speaks to those who have tasted the good word of God. That's all of you here today. Verse 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. My friend, if you do not believe your end is to be burned, that should make you afraid. You're a fool if you, that doesn't make you afraid. Why wouldn't you fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell forever? Oh, this should make you so dissatisfied with yourself that you're a fruitless field, ready to be burned. And if you died today, that's exactly what would happen. You need to fear. But sixth, I call you as well to hope. Just as freely as I preach to you God's condemnation, so I preach to you his salvation, freely offered to you, even you, unconverted sinner, fruitless field, today, that can change. Today, you can be saved. It's from our very text. God, think of it, in the midst of the egregious apostasy of northern Israel, the terrible idolatry and sin. There are many whoredoms, as the earlier part of this book tells us. Nonetheless, to them, nonetheless, my friend, to you, no matter how terrible your sins have been, no matter how sharp those thorns, no matter how ugly and fruitless 
those thistles that have come up in your life, I tell you today there's hope. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. God will save you. Indeed, this is itself a threat. For if he's offered such a free salvation, how terribly foolish would it be to reject it? But even with all your folly, it's still free. And God will still save you if you come upon his terms. Hear the word again from Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. Do you hear it? It's a promise of God. He will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And here again, these images of the fruitfulness of the field that God will bring. Verse 10, for as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. And oh, unbeliever, if you need a proof of it, just look around at the Christians, the true believers here. This word has not been void in their own life. There's fruit upon the field. And if you desire that your field also would be fruitful, come to this God today and he will make you fruitful. He will plow your heart and he'll give you grace to do so. And as verse 13 said, instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What greater hope could God promise to you, even you today, unbeliever? So six means for the unconverted to plow up, to break up the fallow ground of their heart. But I turn now to the converted, to the people of God who love him, who keep his commandments, who are serving him, even with all their failings, coming always to Christ. And though the fruit sometimes be small and sparse, it's there. All of that I've just said has been useful to you too, I'm sure, and it ought to be. But I want to bring you three means in particular for yourselves. The first is you need to do a survey of your own hearts. You need to look at your fields and see their fruitfulness or lack of fruitfulness. Imagine that your heart is like a large homestead and you've got gardens, you've got pastures, you've got woods. You need to walk or ride around the hole and see it. You need to look between the rows of your gardens and see how your plants are doing. You need to go into your pastures and see if there's good grass growing there or harmful weeds. You need to go into your woods and look there, especially at the edge where the poison ivy grows. Look into the woods and see whether those trees are useful or whether some of them are dead or poisonous or troublesome and need to be taken down. You can't, of course, do this work of plowing if you don't know the state of your own fields. You need to survey your own heart and be honest before God. 
again, from the Proverbs. Wisdom here that applies, of course, to financial matters, but how much more to spiritual. Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks, and look well to thy herds, for riches are not forever, and doth a crown endure to every generation. If you want to make and maintain spiritual productivity, you need to look well to your fields. Survey. Second, having done that, give thanks. This is something the unconverted will not be able to do, though in his own way he ought to, for all the blessings God has given him. But I speak especially to you, insofar as you have reaped in mercy, there ought also to be a harvest from your heart of thankfulness. Do you know that you were not a fruitful field? If you go through those fields and see today even one little piece of fruit, one cucumber, a few blueberries, a few good fruits, that itself, my friend, is proof that God has been exceedingly good to you. And you ought to thank him. You ought to praise him that he has changed your nature, that you're not the fruitless field you used to be. And in this giving of thanks, don't you know that that itself will be a means to soften the soil of your heart, to make it more ready and to receive more seed and to bear more fruit? Use thankfulness as a means, a response indeed to God's work in your heart, but also as a means to furthering that work. But then third, I bring you the same application as to the unconverted, that of repentance. Repentance must begin at some point, but it must continue. The Christian is not someone who has completed his work of repentance. He's someone who's begun it. And that work must continue as long as there remains any portion of our field that is unfruitful. And you know well that will be your entire life. There is going to be no time upon this earth in which there is not some place that lacks fruitfulness. You will never lack weeds and rocks. You will never lack troubles in your homestead, that of your heart. Drawing in these agricultural images of scripture, I want to give you three helps in this work of repentance, according to three types of sins that you have to deal with. The first is dealing with hard soil. This would be a heart that is insensible. Do you know this? This feeling that I've received all this rain and all this good treatment from God, and he's been so careful to give me so many good things, and yet I'm still so unfruitful. He's pushed the plow, but it's not dug in. I'm not bearing fruit as I should. I'm lukewarm, as Christ says to Laodicea. There's much sowing, but little fruit. You can think of the warning of the soil in which the seed falls by the wayside and the birds just come and snatch it up. That's speaking primarily of unbelievers, but the believing heart knows how often this is true. What to do here? 
you have to dig deeper with that plow. You might need to sharpen it so that its edge cuts more. You might have to find more oxen to tie to it, to pull it harder and deeper. You might need to change your mind about the nature of Christian agriculture, that it's not like Adam and Eve in the garden, in which all their work was delightful, but that we live in an age of thorns and thistles and of work by the sweat of our brow. Surely you'll confess that, Christian. But does your life show that you understand the Christian life is one of hard labor, of hard plowing, of digging, of cutting? You need to be more reconciled to this fact. This really is the only way to be a Christian. As the Lord Jesus tells us, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, it is the violent that take it by force. You have to deal with your hard ground with a spiritual violence. If it doesn't yield to your shovel, to your plow, you have to give it more power. Don't forget, of course, this power comes from God. Not without prayer, not without faith, and yet that power is to be exercised by you. It's not God who does your good works for you. They're to be your own. So give yourself to more plowing. As Christ says in Revelation 3.19, not just repent, be zealous and repent. And pray as well for rain. Pray that God, by his almighty power, would soften that soil so all your plowing would have success. So that's hard soil. Another problem we encounter in repentance is rocks in the soil. Large boulders even. Right below the surface, you can't see them there, but you start the digging and the plow hits it and stops. This would be like our hidden sins. The sins that are inside. Remember, Christ speaks to us in that parable of the rocky soil and how something will grow and it will shoot up, but then it will die, withered. We don't have the depth. If we don't remove the rocks, that is the secret sins in our lives, we won't have the fruitfulness that we ought. Jeremiah asks, and I ask you, how long will thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? Again from Proverbs, God says to you, my son, Give me thine heart. Is this perhaps the reason, Christian, why you don't have the fruitfulness you ought? Because you've been dealing with the weeds that break the surface, but not with the stones that are there underneath. The sins of the heart. The sins of the thoughts. Of the mind. You ought to take every thought captive to obey Christ. As Paul says. But then third and finally, the weeds. The weeds, of course, a plow helps in this way by tearing up the weeds and knocking them out of the soil. And Christ warns us about the weeds, the thorns and thistles that come up and choke the word so that it is unfruitful. He warns us about the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust for earthly things. And so it is for every sin. The weeds will be those sins that not only are underneath the ground, but that come up and are visible 
and public. And these especially need your attention because they've gone on far too long. For your encouragement, I bring you an illustration from a book on gardening that I was reading about. A man in Canada who was able to make a good deal of money market gardening, which I gather is rare. But he was able to do it in part because he had a policy. And he called it the zero weed policy. And it's as it sounds. He made a full commitment to deal fully with all the weeds in his garden because he understood that weeds would take away his fruitfulness and make his life as a farmer much more difficult. So he had many ways of dealing with weeds. One was to lay down black plastic on the ground, which would warm up the soil. The weed seeds would germinate, but then they get no light and die. So it would take care of some of the seeds that were in the ground. After that, he would use a flame weeder to burn the plants that would come up still. And he even had this creative way of putting in the good seed and knowing exactly how many days it would be before they come up and then using the flame weeder the day before to kill everything else and then that good seed would come up with less competition. Of course, then that didn't take care of all the weeds. This was no utopian philosophy of gardening. He knew there would always be lots of weeds. So he had different shapes and sizes of hose to deal with those weeds in the various stages of life and of the stage of plant life. And at the end, anything that escaped all those things, as many did, would have to be pulled by hand. But especially before the weeds grew up, and put out seed because those seeds would then scatter and you'd have a thousand more of the same weed. This man was diligent to free his garden from weeds. Oh, Christian, would you learn from that? Because if those weeds would hurt his bottom line as a farmer, how much more will the weeds of sin hurt your spiritual profitability. You need to pull the weeds in your life. Perhaps there are even some weeds that have become like giant trees, shading out all good fruit in one area, and even by their roots, taking away the very life of the plants that God has planted. You need then by grace, my friend, to take out the axe and the saw and to cut down that tree and then you need to get a stump grinder and grind out every trace that sin. If you really understand what sin is and the nature of this command of God, then you would agree only that level of seriousness in dealing with your sins is appropriate. This is all summarized for us in Paul's command in Romans 8. 13. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Ye shall, by grace, be a fruitful field. Let's stand to pray. Gracious God in heaven, we confess freely before you that by nature we are fallow ground, no good fruit, all weeds and rocks. We confess, Lord, 
that unless you plow us first by your regenerating power, we have no hope of putting our own hand to the plow. We also confess how unwilling we are to plow. We pray for those among us who have no faith, who are not doing this work of plowing, who have no desire to do so. We pray that they would hear the word today and repent. We pray, Lord, for ourselves as believers. We lack so much in this work, and we can see, even in our mind's eye now, how many portions of our field we've let go to weeds. Father, forgive our negligence. Forgive us, Lord. Would you plow up? Would you break up the hard and the stony ground? And would you bless us that we, following you and trusting in you alone, would do the same. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.